0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Joe Dennis about his new book, Writing, Publishing, and Reading Local Gazetteers in Imperial China from 1100 to 1700. This came out just this year in 2015 with Harvard University Asia Center. In this book, Joe takes us into the stages in the life cycle of one of the most important Uh, kinds of sources for the Chinese historian, and that is the local gazetteer. He brings us into the processes of conceiving of the need for a local gazetteer, compiling materials to produce one, editing those materials, printing, publishing, disseminating, and then using this kind of source for any number of different purposes and as a source of evidence in lots of different really interesting kinds of contexts. So along the way, we learn not just about this particular kind of source, which again is absolutely vital to understand for any of us who works on late imperial Chinese history, but we also learn about really innovative and interesting kinds of research methodologies that Joe's brought to this work, and that might have broader implications for other kinds of topics in other kinds of histories and other kinds of fields. So it was really a pleasure to talk with him about it. I hope you have a chance also to get your hands on the book. This is going to be a must-read for many years to come, and it's going to absolutely now have to be on uh, you know syllabi, comprehensive and general's exam lists, and really the book lists and the bookshelves of anybody who works with Chinese history sources um, from the late imperial period or who's just interested in learning about them. Thanks very much for listening. As ever, thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Joseph Dennis about his new book, Writing, Publishing, and Reading Local Gazetteers in Imperial China, 1100 to 1700. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Joe, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Well, thanks for having me on your show, Carla.
0: Sure. So, Joe, let's start off at the very beginning, as is typical for the channel, and talk a little bit about how you came to the field. Um, So what brought you to work on the history of China and on the particular period of the history of China that you look
1: at? Well, a lot of it just came by chance. When I was a senior in college, I met somebody who had taken high school Chinese at Minneapolis Central High School with Margaret Wong, and then she became a Chinese major at the University of Wisconsin, where we were undergraduates. Uh, She wanted to go to China, and so I started taking Chinese because I planned on going with her. So I went to China and taught English for a year, And then went to law school in Minneapolis. (laughs) And when I was there, I met Ann Waltner and Ted Farmer and Romine Taylor, who are Chinese history professors. Ann Waltner has a reading group and I started going to the reading group as a hobby. And so I worked as a lawyer for a decade in Minneapolis and uh, every Wednesday night would go to Ann's house and read old Chinese documents. So, I got into the Ming because there were three Ming specialists at the University of Minnesota. And eventually, I gave up being a lawyer and became a Chinese history professor.
0: Oh, wow. That's really cool. I didn't know that. So, how did you. Oh, so, the book that we're talking about today, right? I'll just mention for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, looks in particular at a genre of text called gazetteers. Local gazetteers, in particular, um, form the bulk of the book. So, how did you come? to this topic in particular, why gazetteers, and what drew you to this particular
1: focus? As a graduate student, I was interested in doing a dissertation on Chinese legal history and started looking for sources. So I looked to gazetteers to see if they had anything about law cases or such, and I just got sucked into the the genre. I realized there hadn't been that much written about it, And the the more I looked at gazetteers, the more interested I became. So I finally gave up on the the legal history project as a dissertation and went with the gazetteer project.
0: So how did the project change, if at all, from the move from uh, the dissertation form to the book form? Were there any major kind of transformations in how you were conceptualizing or, or really building kind of the bones of the project that eventually became the book?
1: in the as a dissertation it was much more of a social history of a, a particular group of gazetteer compilers i started to find things that related to book history for example how much it cost to produce books who was printing them a lot of details about the publishing industry and so after i'd finished the dissertation i spent a year on a postdoc and gathered up a lot more sources uh, and really realized that you could find out all kinds of things about the publishing industry that I hadn't found in the dissertation. So I expanded that. And so the focus changed uh, much, much more to be a, a piece about uh, kind of book history.
0: So gazetteers emerged as a genre in the Song Dynasty. And take us into this early history of gazetteers in the introduction of the book. The book, however, focuses on the Ming period, and this is the first period, as you tell us um, here in the introduction, from which a large number of gazetteers survive. And I think it's um, you mentioned at least or about 1,014 of these. So 1,014 gazetteers is a lot of gazetteers, right? Just even focusing on the Ming ones. Can you maybe um, start us off um, a little bit to kind of understand the scope and the methodology and your approach to the sources for this project by telling us a little bit about how you approached and managed work um, on this number of documents. Sort of that's, a, that's a lot, right? So how did you um, kind of design your workflow, basically, and your work um, process for managing this, potentially, this number of texts?
1: Well, in the... PhD project I covered somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 or 60 or 270 I forgot the exact number but uh, I was mostly using ones that I could get access to relatively easily so there's reprint series such as the Tianyi Ge reprint series uh, and some others and these tended to be concentrated in particular areas mostly in eastern China as the project went on I tried to systematically look for ones from other parts of China including the southwest the northwest uh, so I'd have a better geographical distribution also when I for example in in chapter 4 I talk about uh, craftsmen who printed gazetteers from particular places and so then I would look for more gazetteers from those places. So after after the whole research phase ended, I probably uh, had had read more than 500 different titles. Now, that being said, there's one title might have multiple copies and those copies might be different. So uh, when you say there's a th- about a thousand titles, there in terms of total individual copies, there's more and they're not all the same.
0: In fact, that's actually one of the really interesting points that comes up in the book, and this comes up a little bit later on, but since we're talking now, we might as well um, get into it. You do describe gazetteers as living documents, right? I mean, they change, and you just describe that. So just for listeners who aren't really familiar um, with this kind of text, with this kind of document, when you talk about a title, you may be talking about several different actual books, right, the, that together comprise that single title. So even 500 plus titles could mean lots and lots and lots more individual um, sort of objects that you're looking at. So let's talk about that a little bit, um, just to kind of understand, again, this a uh, little bit more of the scope. What do you mean when you say that gazetteers are living, right, living objects, right. Or living works, um, and how does that impact, if at all, your particular research
1: strategy for the book. So this this became actually an object of study. I w- was interested in the compilation process. And so from one if if you get all of the extant copies of a particular title and you can see how it changes over time and one of the things that happens is when a new magistrate would come to a county he would update the gazetteer not always but but often and so you see insertions by particular magistrates. So let's say you had something published in 1550. The magistrate leaves in 1552, maybe in 1554, 1555, you'd have a few pages stuck in. So this is a this is part of a technology question because these are woodblock prints. They're printed from woodblocks. You can insert a woodblock into uh, the next printing of the of the book. So it's a genre that allows for repeated updating uh, without doing, recutting the whole thing.
0: So for you, when you were sitting down and um, deciding to look at a particular gazetteer from a particular locality, uh, did you have a particular approach since these were, again, live-in documents or cutting off you know how many editions you were going to look at or how you were going to decide that you'd seen enough um, versions of a particular gazetteer
1: <laughs> well i probably could have just kept going but as in many things in life this is is determined by how much time you have
0: of course right
1: <laughs> so there was the dissertation had to be done at one point the postdoc was coming to an end at one point uh the book had to be done for 10 year so in ideally i would have looked at every one of them but that was not possible um there's there's just too many so a lot of what i was doing was i became interested in a particular subtopic and i had taken notes on all of these different gazetteers, things that were interesting about them or that somehow struck me. And so then I would gather all of the things that related to that. So this is sort of a primitive database approach. Um, And then if, if I thought I needed more on a particular point, then I might go back and try to find more on that particular topic.
0: So you mentioned early on in the book, and you've already talked a little bit about this, that the book um, contributes and is also shaped in part by an interest in and by the uh, methodologies of social history and book history. And you talk early on about um, some of the most important sources for your study being the paratexts, the paratextual material of gazetteers. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? What kinds of paratextual material did you find in these gazetteers, and why is it so useful for the kind of methodology that you're using?
1: Most kinds of Chinese books have introductions or prefaces, and gazetteers are no exception. They often have multiple prefaces, and in addition, there will be compilation orders in some of them. So a compilation order is usually a request for money to print a gazetteer that comes from a local magistrate so once the book was compiled money had to be found to print it and that will often discuss the printing process it might talk about expenses Uh, it might talk about editorial decisions so that when i when i say the paratextual elements mostly what i'm talking about is prefaces Uh, petitions for permission to print a gazetteer uh, afterwards or post faces and occasionally some materials such as um, craftsmen's names and hometowns that you'd find in the margins uh, in the white mouth area along the where the page fold is. So these these were the most important things that I used.
0: So the book argues that gazetteers, in the words of the introduction, were important points of intersection between the central government and local societies, and were one of the main vehicles for transmitting local information to central government officials, among other things. They also circulated local information to both local readers and non-local readers. And the book helps to answer, um, or at least open up and expand and inform some major questions that are outlined right at the beginning. So I'll just throw these out for listeners right now. How did local elites connect to and influence central government officials and policy? In a vast empire, how was local information produced? How was it collected? How was it disseminated? How did the centralizing imperial state incorporate peripheral areas into the empire? And we'll talk about that in a moment. And who had access to books in general? What kinds of people were literate? Um, And how do we kind of use this particular genre to inform that broader set of questions? Now, in order to take on and answer and, and open up these questions, the book has seven body chapters that are organized according to the kind of the life stages, the stages in the life of a gazetteer. The first chapter looks at the stage that we might call conception it considers the reasons that different levels of government produced gazetteers. So it moves us from the compilation orders of some Ming emperors. It talks about a kind of broad overview of the genre's origins and developments. And it also brings us into um, kind of uh, two oldest extant sets of editorial rules that served as the organizing principles for local gazetteers submitted to the court for use in a national gazetteer. So let's talk maybe a little bit about this first one. Um, You talk about these two um, sets of editorial rules from 1412 and 1418, and take us through um, the kind of differences in these editorial rules. So can you talk a little bit about that, like for you, what are some of the most interesting aspects of these editorial rules that we find in these early 15th century gazetteers?
1: One of the things that's really interesting about gazetteers is what's left out and what's emphasized. There were a lot of debates over what is the proper scope of gazetteers. So what are the different things that were subject of debate? Well, literature, literature. Is literature part of a gazetteer or is a gazetteer something more for governance? So I I see this as a a tension between is it about local literati society or is it more a tool of the central government? People were also debating the role of religion and minority peoples. Uh, How much how much should you cover that's? Considered orthodox by the central government, and how much should you cover that's not? So, non orthodox religious sects were often ignored. Uh, The scope of biographies changes over time how much emphasis is placed on virtuous women. You see a lot more virtuous women biographies in later gazetteers. They're there in earlier gazetteers, but they're not emphasized as much. So you can, you can learn a lot about what government and local literati thought was important by looking at the editorial principles of gazetteers.
0: So you talk in this chapter as well about compilation of gazetteers in the borderlands. This is really, really fascinating. So in the periphery of the empire, gazetteers of these texts were seen and were treated by Chinese officials as tools for assimilating native peoples into Chinese culture and political order. So can you talk a little bit about that? How were these gazetteers um, used and seen as tools for cultural assimilation?
1: One of the things that gazetteers did was they were often one of the first or the first literary project in a locale that was not predominantly Chinese. So as Chinese settlers would come, Chinese institutions would come with that, such as schools. Gazetteers were often projects of the local Confucian schools and these would accept not just Han Chinese, but other, uh, other people into them. And so these could be viewed as projects of the school that bring local people into elite Chinese literary culture.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And we'll talk a little bit more um, as we kind of move through the book about the importance of morality. An oral culture, uh, and it seems like that was important not just in the borderlands, but also um, in uh, to the compilation of gazetteers more centrally. So we'll talk about that as well in a moment. So oral and literate cultures <laughs> become really, really interesting here. The chapter two takes us from this um, general introduction and overview into a social history and a microhistory of the gazetteer. It looks at the compilation of the fourteen seventy seven and 1579 editions of the Xinjiang County Gazetteer. Now, this is really interesting for lots of reasons. Um, so you in here, uh, methodologically, you're comparing the biographical information in the gazetteers with information in other genealogies. And you, you name some other genealogies or genealogical sources that you consulted to understand the role of genealogy in these gazetteers. Those included um, lineages of Xinjiang, uh, or from Xinjiang, from the Utah Genealogical Society, the Xinjiang County Archives, the Shanghai Library, and Columbia University. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that methodology. Um, can you talk a little bit about, for you, what were some of the most important, interesting aspects of this kind of, kind of broad-ranging genealogical research for you? And what did that research help you understand about um, genealogy and kinship in this particular
1: gazetteer. As I was reading the 1579 gazetteer's introduction, or the, the prefaces to it, I realized that the editorial committee were people who were related to each other. And then I started noticing that the biographies that are spread throughout the gazetteer somehow connect to most of these people so then then i thought well okay maybe what i should do is really try to reconstruct the familial network of these people uh, to see how they're interacting both uh, in terms of intermarriage but then also have a, a social reconstruction of their networks so the way I did this was collecting a lot of genealogies from the places you mentioned. A lot of them came from the Xinjiang County archives. And so I, I matched people in the gazetteer to people as they appear in the genealogies. And from this, what you could see was that there's a very dense intermarried elite in this county, in the Ming dynasty, uh, (laughs) that took control of this, the publication of this gazetteer. So then from that, I argue, well, you can read this as a public genealogy uh, of this densely intermarried cross-surname elite family. So we're we're used to thinking about lineage in terms of a patriline. So if you have somebody named Lee and then all their descendants, that would be a powerful, you could have a powerful lineage group. But what I argue from this is that you can also see an extended family taking action in local society uh, and that this is reflected in the way they compiled the genealogy. No, sorry, the gazetteer.
0: And the chapter actually argues that um, they're using the gazetteer to support their claims to leadership, right? Um So essentially, it's, um, they're using it for a particular agenda. What other kinds of agendas might the compiler of a gazetteer have in mind?
1: Yeah, When when you read gazetteers, I think it's very useful to think about different agendas that are possible and to see uh, what might happen. (laughs) Examples of this in the last chapter of the book, I talk about lawsuits and how people sometimes tried to plant information in gazetteers to affect lawsuits down the road. One example that I discuss is in a water rights dispute where a person was bribed to put in a falsified history of a local reservoir in a way that would benefit this particular faction over the farmers who lived right around it. So there's there's some kind of strategic use of gazetteers for in, in different ways. So claiming a right to lead we also saw that in the uh, Borderland Gazetteer from Mahu and Sichuan, where people were laying out. Uh, they were. Let me let me step back a second. It was an area run by uh, a, a. What would you call it? An Aboriginal office. So these are non-Chinese people who had uh, controlled this area historically and were granted titles. At the Ming founding, uh, they in order to pass on their title, they had to establish their genealogy and so they used the gazetteer in part to establish their genealogy but also to demonstrate their good governance of the region so there's there's these kind of genealogical strategic uses there's uses in lawsuits uh, there's also. The use of a gazetteer to portray the magistrate's service as excellent service, so magistrates would come and go, and they needed to be able to document that they did a good job in a particular place, and so there's a political purpose to some gazetteer entries uh, for for magistrates for local people for others. Okay. Thank
0: you, so as we move from chapter two to chapter three we move to some chapters that look specifically at the production process. So we've just been talking about kind of reasons for compilation, agendas for compilation, kind of conception of gazetteers. Now we're looking um, specifically at the production of gazetteers. So chapter three looks very broadly at how editorial issues impact um, how we periodize or, or can periodize. Um, I was going to pronounce that correctly a little bit more slowly, gazetteers. Now, this is a chapter that really lays out an argument for considering gazetteers to be living documents, and we've already talked a little bit about that. But here, specifically, you're arguing that understanding gazetteers as living documents can really materially impact how we periodize So, can you talk a little bit about that? How does understanding gazetteers as living documents impact how we understand them in terms of periods?
1: There's been a lot of debate over when gazetteers flourished as a genre. Some people have argued that it was in the Southern Song, others only in the late Ming. And... People have done different counts of this. So one of the issues is how do you think about what is a gazetteer? And until you can decide what you mean by gazetteer, it's very hard to do a count and start comparing that count to the counts from different periods. So, for example, in, in the early Ming, people thought there weren't that many Gazetteers, but in fact, there were huge gazetteer compilation projects in the late 1300s and early 1400s. But most of these were submitted as manuscripts to the central government with perhaps one or two copies kept in the locale that produced it. Uh, Many of those copies then disappeared. So there's systematic undercounting of these kinds of quickly done. Manuscript copies that were kept locally. So this, this really affects how you think about the scope of gazetteer production over time and when you think of gazetteers as flourishing. From the way that I'm analyzing gazetteers, including ones that are done quickly for other projects, ones that are redone, what you see is, yes, gazetteers Flourish in the southern Song, and there's a, a, a steady increase in the production of gazetteers as literati culture spreads to more and more areas. They're done more frequently uh, in areas that have a lot of, of literati, and the genre continues to flourish all the way through the Qing dynasty and, and down into the present.
0: Now, the chapter takes us into not just um, the kind of fact of and the consequences of understanding Gazetteers as living documents, but it also takes us into the material kind of details of the editorial process. So this chapter describes, for example, the kinds of spaces that editors worked in, the kinds of people um, from whom the editors of, of Gazetteers were drawn, where they got their source material. So let's talk a little bit about that because this is one of the ways that I think the book. Um, that we're talking about really contributes in some fascinating ways to a kind of social history of the book. So let's talk about that. What kinds of spaces, uh, like who were these guys that worked on the Gazetteers, and and where were they working uh, their editorial processes for the Gazetteers?
1: The people who worked on Gazetteers were mostly students at the school or people somehow involved in the exam system or official system. So this would be people who were juren or jinshi, the the uh, people who had degrees, who served as officials, and then came back to their hometown while on some kind of leave. For example, between assignments or when one of their parents died and they had to take 27 months of leave. Um, students did a lot of the lower level work, magistrates would sometimes be involved in the final editing, but often they just retained the people who would do it. They collected materials in from various places, some traveled around the county or prefecture, depending on what unit was doing it uh, and then assembled the materials in some particular place, usually the school, sometimes in the yamen, occasionally in a private home. So the the spaces did vary. Even uh, religious institutions or shrines could have gazetteer compilation offices.
0: So one of the really interesting parts of um, that what's happening in this chapter talks about where these guys are getting their source materials, right? So where are they drawing the materials from which the gazetteers are compiled? And this gets back to one of the things that we were talking about earlier, and that is, oral histories and oral sources. So you talk in this chapter about the importance of interviews with local people and with all kinds of local people. So can you talk about oral, like kind of uh, a history of oral history, sort of, um, in the way that it informs how some of the information in this gazette in these gazetteers was compiled?
1: And so gazetteers are, are the material's, or them come from different places some are just documentary sources some are books but then oral history becomes very important as well compilers often did interviews of all kinds of different people and would take these materials and put them into written form so if you think of gazetteers as kind of a base level history uh this this is actually kind of a what would you say there's a stream of history that starts out from gazetteers the person goes out does an interview collects documents puts them into the local history or the local gazetteer and then these get taken up into higher level histories for example the dynastic history <gasps> Genealogies also are part of this chain. Genealogy materials get funneled into Gazetteers, which then get funneled into the higher level historical works. So you know, I think of this Gazetteers as being a nexus in, in an information network where all kinds of things are funneled into it and then they become available for distribution. Uh, into the rest of the society, including places outside the local society, into the national national culture.
0: So as we move from this chapter to the next one, we move to a chapter, Chapter 4, that looks at the publication of local gazetteers in both manuscript and in print forms. So you mentioned here that all gazetteers started out as manuscripts and some were eventually printed, and you take us into that process and the kind of details of that process. Now, one of the really interesting points here, from the perspective of book history and a book history of and in China um, specifically, is that you mention um, that are there that there are some kinds of differences really in the way that the printing and publishing of gazetteers. Um, and the printing and publishing of other kinds of texts played out. So to put um, in a more succinct way, the printing and publishing of gazetteers uh, was different from that of books and other genres. Can you talk about those differences? What what are some of the most important differences and why are they important for informing how we understand book history
1: in China? Let me think about that for just a second. Um, One of the things to keep in mind <clears throat> is that for many gazetteers, the manuscript form was the final form requested by the imperial court. So if you look at what what gazetteers were held by the central libraries and offices, most of these were submitted in manuscript form. And then... Sometimes they were later reprinted, or simultaneously, or very soon after the manuscript was submitted, printed in the locale. So these are these are books that are tied to a particular place in ways that many other kinds of books are not. Uh, they were printed on site in the locale by and large. Occasionally, a manuscript would be sent out for printing, but generally, print craftsmen were brought into the particular locale. Uh, This is not the case for many other genres. This is a non-commercial book. So it's not like a commercial publisher who's trying to sell thousands of copies of a particular novel or play or farming manual. Uh, these, These were given to visiting officials. Uh, local people could also get copies. Compilers could get copies, so they were available for reading both locally and sometimes outside of the local area. Um, but it's it's a different it's a different kind of uh, distribution than some commercial publishers.
0: So the chapter also um, just to kind of mark this for listeners, without necessarily going into too much detail. The chapter also pays special attention to the business zones of print craftsmen for local gazetteers. So we learn a lot in this chapter about um, the kinds of um, who was cutting the wood blocks, where are these craftsmen coming from, um, where were the blocks cut, um, where were these uh, physically, right, where were these gazetteers printed. So there's a really interesting story that comes out of Chapter 4 about the material culture, really, and the, the kind of business culture of the printing um, and the cutting of the blocks for printing of gazetteers. Now, these also had to be paid for, right? All of these processes cost money, and the next chapter takes us into the financing of gazetteers and of the, the process of making them and distributing them. So, let's kind of start um, big here. How much did gazetteers typically cost to produce, and how was that cost funded? Can you speak a little bit to those uh, cost issues?
1: Sure. There's quite a variation in cost from perhaps 10 tails of silver, a tail being approximately an ounce of silver, uh, to several hundred, because the size of gazetteers varied quite a bit. Some were maybe 50, 60 pages. Others were hundreds and hundreds of pages. So the you know, the cost is... There's a few parts to it. There's the labor costs. There's the material costs for wood blocks, for paper, uh, for ink. But the labor is the main cost because magistrates almost always hired people to uh, do the wood block cutting. And the labor cost is... It depends on how many blocks you're going to cut. So the investment is really upfront in in making the blocks. After that, you have a cost that varies just by how many copies you want to run off. Paper was, was relatively inexpensive in Ming China. So uh, the paper is not actually the largest cost. It's hiring the craftsmen, feeding them and paying them their wages was the biggest cost.
0: you talk in this chapter as well about the ways that gazetteers can help us understand the history of the book industry in general, right? There's a lot of variation um, in cost and other factors in terms of the time, the place, and the type of the book that was being produced. For you, what are some of the most important ways that understanding um, gazetteers can help us understand um, the history of the book industry in China in ways that we might not get from other studying other genres of books and book production.
1: One of the things that's really useful about studying gazetteers for studying book production is because they're official documents tied to governments, they often contain orders about their printing. And from the prefaces, we often usually, in fact, know where they were printed almost always they were printed in the place that was the subject of the gazetteer. So if you were doing one on Nanchang in Jiangxi, it was probably going to be printed in Nanchang. Uh, In many other genres of books, in fact, most other genres of books, you don't know where it was printed unless you, there's some kind of publisher imprint on it. So what, What Studying gazetteers makes possible is identifying different regional printing centers outside of the main commercial publishers that we know a lot about. For example, in in Nanjing uh, and in Fujian, some other places, especially in southeastern and the Yangtze River Delta. Uh, Previously, we didn't think that Beijing was a a very important publishing site in the Ming. It, It became that in the Qing. But uh, by studying gazetteers, you can see lots of craftsmen coming from Beijing or manuscripts going to Beijing for printing. So you can get a, a geographical element to printing that you can't get from other sources. And you can get a sense of the movement of of labor and of of texts because you know, where the subject locale is and where it was written and then where it was printed. So it's a, it's a really a, a terrific genre for studying book history.
0: So as we move from this to the next chapter, we move to the next major part of the book. So we've already looked at um, one part of the book, part one, that looks at compilation, and we've now moved through the chapters that constitute part two of the book, which looks at production. Now we move into part three of the book um, that looks at reading and use of these gazetteers. And chapter six looks at target and actual readerships for these texts. So um, you talk about the kind of intended audiences of these gazetteers, largely being officials and literati. Um, But one of the really interesting things that's happening in this chapter is that you're looking at actual readerships for these gazetteers, which in some ways is a much harder kind of thing to get at, right? And I think this is true for many of us who work on book history um, at all, right? Or any aspect of the history of a text, trying to get at actual reading practices rather than intended or ideal reading practices can be one of the most difficult aspects of this kind of research. So I'd like to, um, to ask you about that. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the actual readerships of some of these gazetteers and what's, um, what are some of the most interesting things about that for you and how did you go about getting at that um, as part of your research?
1: So, th- so this is a very difficult thing to do as you, as you mentioned. So I started finding references to people reading gazetteers mostly by chance. So for example when I was looking through genealogies I came across People's critiques of how the gazetteer presented their family. So, in I believe it's in in chapter two, I talk about a couple of documents that are critiques of the compiler of the 1477 Shinchung gazetteer because he excludes things about a particular family whose surname was Huang. They argue that he did this because. They had sued the compiler, who was the local school instructor, because he had destroyed their grave in order to expand the school grounds. So, this, their responses to the Gazetteer, uh, are, they come out of the fact that they filed this lawsuit and then they felt there was revenge taken on them because of it. I, I also searched in the Academia Seneca database, I just typed in all of the, the titles of gazetteers uh, that I had and saw, looked to see how did they come up in other people's writings. So what, what were they using them for? And you see all kinds of different uses. Um, but in terms of actually finding responses, there's database searches, looking through Um, sources where I expected to find readers' responses. For example, looking at the collected works of people who I knew to be interested in gazetteers. So there's some people wrote letters about them, corresponded with other literati about gazetteers. So that's, that's another way that I found sources. In terms of what people were reading them for, there's a lot of different things people read them for. I mentioned before, lawsuits. Uh, Officials would often read gazetteers before they came to a new place. They were not local to the area where they would serve so when they were assigned a new post by the central government they would look to see what they could find out about the the locale. People who were tourists, uh, people who were traveling would look to local gazetteers as they traveled or even before they traveled Uh, People did general reading, people who liked poetry and literature, people who uh, were interested in genealogy, people would look for long lost relatives. They try to do research on family graves. So there's a there's a wide range of readership for local gazetteers, although officials are certainly one of the most important groups.
0: So we're going to get more um, into the details of some of those cases in a moment, but it might be helpful for listeners to understand how these people would get access to the gazetteers in the first place, right? So in um, Chapter 6, you talk a little bit about the distribution of gazetteers. Initially, they were fairly small print runs, and then um, they could be printed on demand thereafter. And then sometimes, um, as you describe here, decades after the initial print of the, uh, of the text. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of for you, what are some of the most interesting and important aspects of the distribution of these gazetteers um, that might help us understand how they got into the hands of some of these people uh, who then used them for some of the purposes that you just described?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned printing on demand. So what this means is the blocks were usually held by the local Confucian school or in the local government center, the Yaman, after the blocks were cut. And then when people would ask for copies, if there was a copy already printed, they could buy one or get one depending on the situation. Uh, They could receive them as gifts from people who had access. But then also when officials would pass through. So the Ming government had regular inspections of county officials and so those officials when they travel through they would ask for the gazetteer you see lots of reference to officials asking for gazetteers when they would get to a, a particular place uh, this was something that was recommended by the the famous philosopher Zhu Xi, and it was recommended in many magistrates handbooks so getting the gazetteer was viewed as a as a way to get to know a particular place. The the gazetteers also circulated in local society. There is a public aspect to them. For example, when we were talking about the editorial process, the collection of materials, there's... I found different proclamations that were posted on government front gates, the government center front gates saying, okay, we're compiling the gazetteer and we're soliciting materials. Please submit them to the gazetteer office. So people would be aware that the gazetteer was being done and many people would get copies. Um, They don't appear to have been sold in bookstores as, as new but they do appear as used copies uh, were resold in book source. So there was a market for gazetteers. A lot of people who did other kinds of writing, for example, uh, writing about famous mountains of China or uh, things on a particular topic, would co- these people would collect gazetteers and then write, use them as sources in their own writings.
0: So one of the really interesting things that you talk about here um, in Chapter 7, when you're talking about the reasons why um, officials sent to areas that they weren't local to um, in order to govern there would read gazetteers and and what they might find there, you mentioned not just their use reading these as uh, kind of casual reading, um, but also to bond with members of the local elite. You also mentioned that gazetteers were used kind of intergenerationally intergener- to transmit policy ideas to successive local um, governors of a particular regions. So that's actually really interesting, right? These texts are used to actually transmit ideas for policies to successors of so kind of whoever comes after you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems, um, that's not what a reader might typically expect um, when they look for kinds of information that would come out of a gazetteer or at least that's not what I would expect. I'd love to hear more about that.
1: So let's say that you were a member of the local elite and you really thought there should be a canal or you thought that this particular institution should be rebuilt or invested in, but the current magistrate who would typically serve three years or six years is not interested in helping you with that project. Well, magistrates come and go. So you would have a place to lay a groundwork for uh, influencing future local resident administrators. Now, of course, you can go directly, but one of the things that a gazetteer does is it makes it uh, kind of a historical fact or something that has the color of official history about it. And so by getting your position described in the historical record, this has the potential to, to help down the road in advocating for your position.
0: Sounds like we need university administration gazetteers. Because <laughs> we're coming <from> <laughs> handy. So that's the best thing this
1: yeah, Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So as we come to chapter seven, Joe, we come to, um, again, um, a kind of more detailed exploration of the uses of these gazetteers. We've already talked a bit about the use um, by officials. You've already mentioned as well, very briefly, the use of gazetteers by travelers, kind of traveling on the road. And there's some really wonderful cases of that that are mentioned in this chapter. So the kind of travel writing and the use of gazetteers um, by travelers is a really important part of this study. You briefly talk about the use of gazetteers in military planning. And, of course, you talk about the use of gazetteers in lawsuits. Now, since you've um, told us already a little bit about how you came into the field of China studies, it was through law, right, and an interest in legal history. Um, And you've already kind of briefly mentioned the importance of lawsuits here. Can you talk more specifically about this? um, these lawsuits over water rights that show up in this chapter? They're super fascinating, Um, and I would love to hear from you as someone, again, particularly interested in legal history, what you find so interesting about these suits over water rights and the uses of gazetteers in that particular case.
1: Well, I'm really interested in how people know what they know about law. This actually came from my law practice. I was always perplexed by how many Americans didn't know basic things about the law, even very educated people. And to a certain degree, this this makes sense. It's a very elaborate and technical uh, subject, but people got, would have ideas that would shape their behavior, what they're doing in their daily life, based on mistaken assumptions about legal principles. And I was very interested in this in China. What how do people know what they know about law? Because China has this elaborate legal tradition, uh, law codes, all kinds of uh, case books that magistrates read. So there's a, a very rich legal culture. But, but how do people actually come to know what they know? And and what counts as as evidence in cases? This is another question that really interested me. And so when I started finding lots of materials about lawsuits in gazetteers, I started to think about them as, as a kind of evidence, uh, that is recognizable by the people making the decisions about cases. So by the magistrate or other judicial officials. And what this, what this means is, well, if they're evidence, there's they become a site for battling over particular kinds of rights in the local society. So, the water rights disputes that I talk about in the last chapter, uh, there's one that's between two different counties and then one between different groups in the local society farmers versus merchants. Um, so, you know, how you understand the historical importance of of um, how the how the reservoirs were built, how the water was distributed, this becomes taken into the gazetteer uh, and then later taken into court cases. Also, after gazetteers, um, excuse me, let me just back up a little bit. One of the things that that many gazetteers contain are. St- Hely transcriptions that document legal decisions, so things like water rights, if there was a case that was decided uh, ab- deciding well who gets the water to this particular reservoir, that often is taken into a gazetteer so it's a it 's a kind of documentary source for legal decisions that that is accessible to the public. Your typical person may not be able to go over to the yamen and ask for Record a case file, but they could go to the gazetteer, which was a public notice that became a textual source copying a stele that would be erected at the site of the dispute and that reflects what's in the file in the Yaman. So there's these kind of multiple copies, uh, multiple places for the distribution of legal decisions
0: actually sounds like a really fascinating Ming Dynasty version of uh, what was happening in a recent science fiction novel that was just published, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife. I don't know if you saw this. Um, No. If you ever have to teach legal history and water rights or if listeners ever want to put your book into conversation with a recent science fiction, there's a whole storyline in that book where um, water rights, uh, for various reasons I won't get into, are being fought over and one of the a kind of smoking guns that they're fighting over is a historical document that proves um, kind of access to water or not. So it's a kind of interesting, uh, modern, very different kind of context version <laughs> of um, the kind of phenomenon that a uh, really fascinating phenomenon that I think you're talking about. So anybody who's teaching legal history and water rights, assign Joe Dennis and Paolo Bacigalupi together <laughs> and see what happens. So, Joe, there's also um, an epilogue to the book that very briefly takes um, this story further into the future of Gazetteers. Um, we won't have too much time um, to talk about that as we're coming to the close of our conversation. But is there anything that's particularly important or fascinating for you about the later production and use of Gazetteers that you would want to mention for listeners? <laughs>
1: I think I would like everybody just to know that this genre continues today and actually has been revitalized starting in the 1980s. The government of the PRC created gazetteer offices in each um, administrative unit. There's a central gazetteer uh, guiding committee, part of the central government. And so this is a, a, a vital genre. Of course, gazetteers today look much different. They have a lot more about industry, uh, more about tourism. But you can see the continuity from the period that I'm talking about, which I stop at about 1700.
0: So, Joe, there's a whole lot of stuff in the book that's fascinating that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? There are individual texts that you bring us into that are completely interesting. There are all kinds of details, very, very elaborate details, fascinating details about the production history, the craftsmanship, the business, um, all kinds of aspects of gazetteer use and production um, that listeners will find when they actually read the book. But um, before that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
1: I think we covered enough where people should have an idea, and uh, I don't think there's anything else that I'd really like to say that we missed. Okay.
0: So, Joe, now that the book is out, and congratulations on what um, I think is very obviously going to be absolute must-read reading about gazetteers and about late Imperial China. Um, now that this is out, what's next for you? What projects are
1: currently inspiring you and what are you working on now? During this project, I became very interested in local schools. This is local schools is where these books were usually compiled. And so I've been I've been working on a project about local schools, especially in western parts of China in, in Gansu and Gansu and Shanxi and Sichuan. Uh, I'm interested in the curricula and the book collections. I'm also interested in legal education, what role Confucian schools had in legal education. Uh, so one, one part of this project that I've been working on recently is songs that were written to get people not to sue each other. So I've been collecting these and and working on a a book chapter about that.
0: (sighs) That's amazing. (laughs) Well, best of luck with that project um, and with that work, Joe. And thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today about the book.
1: Well, thank you, Carla. It's been a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.